So the U.S. government is trying to get us all to accept the dangerously flawed, unworkable Yucca Mountain in Nevada as a long-term, highly radioactive nuclear waste dump, or establish so-called interim storage sites in either New Mexico or West Texas. But how exactly is the radioactive waste from reactors supposed to get to these sites? When a citizen activist asks the men supposedly in charge... What is the route San Onofre fuel will take? What is the rail route that it will take to get to Nevada, New Mexico, or Texas? Every one of them said, well, that hasn't been analyzed yet. And when I kept pushing I, with Holdeck, I said, well, what are the possible routes? His response was, well, what do you recommend, Donna? But I did research it, and the only route that's possible, given the rail system, would be through Los Angeles. Well... When a nuclear so-called expert defers on a question about rail transport of highly radioactive waste to a citizen activist expert, and she's got better and scarier information than he does, that's when you really know that you are in a seat that's getting hotter every day. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Donna Gilmore of San Onofre Safety, on her investigations into what proposed rail transport of San Onofre's nuclear waste would actually mean, something it seems that no one in government has actually investigated. And there's a reason why, because when she tells you, I think you will find her findings outrageous. We'll also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, activist shoutouts, and more honest nuclear information than Robert Mueller has yet gotten around to investigating. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, July 31st, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out this week in South Carolina, where radioactive uranium has leaked through the floor of the Westinghouse South Carolina nuclear fuel plant and contaminated the soil. The facility, located in Richland County near Columbia, South Carolina, also has a nearly 35-year history of groundwater pollution from the plant. The most conflicting part of the entire uranium leak is that officials within the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control said they have no reason to believe the uranium has trickled off the site or that public water supplies are threatened. But the agency also said it does not have the results of recent groundwater tests on the Westinghouse property either, meaning they actually don't really know what the extent of the contamination could be. According to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, 
Uranium used to make nuclear fuel rods has seeped through a three-inch hole in a concrete floor in part of the factory where acid is used. The NRC learned of the leak back on July 12 and says the hole extends six feet into the ground. NRC records show uranium pollution reached 4,000 parts per million in the soil beneath the plant, levels which are 1,300 times higher than the amount of uranium typically found in soil. This according to Health Physics Society, a radiation safety organization. We'll keep following this one. At the Hanford site in southeast Washington state, the Department of Energy wants to start stabilizing a tunnel filled with highly radioactive waste that is at risk of collapse, and they don't want to wait for any more public comments. DOE has asked the Washington Department of Ecology, a Hanford nuclear reservation regulator, if it can proceed with filling the nearly 1,700-foot-long storage tunnel with concrete-like grout as of August to get some, if not all, of the tunnel stabilized with grout before ice and snow make roads slippery this winter. The older of the two waste storage tunnels at the Purex processing plant partially collapsed in May of 2017, causing thousands of workers across the Hanford site to take cover. In Iowa, that state's sole nuclear power plant Dwayne Arnold Energy Center will shut down in late 2020, according to its owner. That's five years ahead of scheduled shutdown. No word if it's because of an attack of conscience or just bad economics. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, Exelon Corporation, which is planning to shut down its Three Mile Island nuclear facility in 2019, is seeking to extend the license for its Peach Bottom nuclear plant by another 20 years, bringing it to a total of 80. Peach Blossom, located 50 miles south of Three Mile Island and on the Maryland border, has been the site of infamous incidents such as control room operators sleeping on the job in the 1980s and several drug arrests of employees. The NRC said the public will be able to participate at various stages of the environmental review in considering the license extension. Radiation with Fukushima's nuclear signature has been found in California wine. Interestingly, radiation testing of wine has been done to find the date of wines without opening the bottles. This non-invasive technique fights against wine fraud, claiming that a wine is older than it is, by matching the amount of radiation in the wine with the amount that was known to be in the atmosphere at that time, specifically checking for cesium-137. The Fukushima disaster began in March of 2011, and the Japanese nuclear disaster bathed North America in a radioactive cloud. And now pharmacologists have found the telltale signature in California wine made at the time. In theory, any wine made before 2011 will not show the Fukushima signature, and all wine made after that date could show it. If you need a drink to deal with this information, be sure to check the vintage before you chug it down. And now, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. At Rocky Flats near Boulder, Colorado, site of a former atomic weapons manufacturing site known to be radioactively contaminated with plutonium, neighborhood citizen activists and genuine experts continue the pressure against having it opened as a wildlife refuge and a human recreational area. 
The Department of Energy has had taxpayer money allocated by Congress to continue to clean up any leftover plutonium contamination, and that includes testing the wildlife area for radiation levels. So what has DOE done? First, they gave the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service $8.3 million of those funds so it can build a visitor center. That's right, folks. Ignore the radiation. Come on down. Now, DOE has taken a bold new step on behalf of people and the environment. They've hired a PR firm to convince communities near Rocky Flats that they are safe from leftover plutonium contamination, and there, there, Missy, don't worry your pretty little head about it. That's right. Instead of using taxpayer money to actually fully test the former buffer zone-turned-refuge land to ensure that it is truly safe in all areas that the public will access to frolic upon, they've hired the PR firm Daniel J. Edelman of Chicago at $400,000 for one year, just one year, to trumpet their agenda. Hey, DOE, if the area is genuinely safe, like you say, why not apply that money to testing? to prove its safety. You wouldn't need a PR firm then. You would need to spend that $400,000 if you've done your job correctly in the first place. If nothing is wrong at Rocky Flats and everything is A-OK, why spend all that money to spin it? Or maybe... Is there something you don't want us to know, don't want us to look at, like all the information local resident activists have discovered about contamination levels, plutonium in the dust that does not respect fences and wafts over into high-end housing developments just across the street? Hey, DOE, what are you trying to hide with this PR campaign? And what in the world makes you think it's money well spent when even local mainstream media, thank you former classmate of mine Rick Salinger of CBS Denver, are on to your shenanigans. Our tax dollars at work. Not. All of which is why Department of Energy and all your little spin doctors at the PR firm Daniel J. Edelman of Chicago, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. And by the way, Denver Channel 4's news anchor Rick Salinger and I did study broadcast journalism together and worked at the local radio station WPGU-FM many, 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 many years ago. So if you see Rick while he's covering this story yet again, please give him my regards. Some great articles over the last couple of weeks, which we will link to on the website nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 371. The first is entitled... Does living near a nuclear plant give children cancer? The short answer is yes. It's by Cindy Folkers, who is the radiation and health specialist for Beyond Nuclear and was posted by Beyond Nuclear International, citing more than 60 studies that have shown increases in childhood leukemia around nuclear facilities worldwide. Also a link to a ProPublica article that the Trump administration has neutered the Nuclear Safety Board. Under new orders from the Department of Energy, a nuclear safety board will have to fight for information about and access to nuclear laboratories, whereas in the past the board has brought serious problems at those labs to light. Of course, numbnuts adjacent story. 
over to Japan, where it appears that hell has frozen over. Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, Japan's largest utility, has revealed plans to develop up to 7 gigawatts of new, genuinely renewable energy capacity, marking a major departure from nuclear as the company strives to regain what they call the competitive edge in energy generation. TEPCO President Tomoaki Kobayakawa told the Nikkei Asian Review that the company planned to pour tens of billions of dollars into renewable energy projects both in Japan and abroad, including offshore wind and hydropower. Great. Now all you have to do is clean up Fukushima Daiichi. TEPCO and the Japanese government are considering starting the removal of molten nuclear fuel from the number two reactor at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster site. A decision on how to carry out the procedures is due by March of 2020 and is scheduled to begin in 2021. We'll see how well that goes. And former Japanese Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi has criticized the Abe administration for its pro-nuclear energy stance and called for the policy to be made an election issue when Japanese citizens go to the polls next year. In Australia... Radioactive nuclear fuel that was used for research and medicine has begun its voyage from Sydney to France, which will extract uranium and plutonium from the waste, and then whatever's left over will be returned to Australia. I hate that radioactive nuclear waste gets to go on better cruises than I do. The Australian Conservation Foundation's Dave Sweeney said the material being shipped to France is boomerang waste, as the intermediate-level waste would be returned. He said, there is no federal government process to identify the best place and method to manage this waste, some of which requires isolation for periods up to 10,000 years, adding that the government is simply trying to buy time instead of solving what he called complex management issues. And here's a cautionary tale showing us that nuclear is in hot water. Literally. Nuclear power plants in Europe have been forced to cut back electricity production because of warmer-than-usual seawater. Plants in Finland, Sweden, and Germany have been affected by a heat wave that has broken records in Scandinavia and the British Isles and exacerbated deadly wildfires along the Mediterranean. Water temperatures are abnormally high in the usually temperate Baltic Sea, and nuclear power plants rely on seawater to cool reactors. Timo Uresto, chief of operations at Finland's Lovisa power plant, made the curious statement that customers have not been affected by reduction in output at the nuclear station because other power plants are satisfying electricity demand. So why keep it running? Cooling issues at nuclear power plants will undoubtedly get worse in the future, because climate change is causing global ocean temperatures to rise and making heat waves more frequent and severe in many parts of the world. A 2011 report by the Union of Concerned Scientists warned that warmer seas could affect the efficiency of nuclear power plants, noting that severe storms produced by climate change threaten nuclear facilities on coasts with wave and wind damage and reduce the amount of water available to plants to cool their reactors with fresh water. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, I know that you care about getting honest, verifiable nuclear news. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Nuclear Hot Seat. That's what we set out to provide every week. Verifiable nuclear information that's been sourced, 
checked and footnoted, plus interviews with people who are genuine experts in various aspects of the nuclear industry and its impact on life, health, and our shared genetic future. Without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue. So if you're grateful for the information you get from the show, help us out by sending a donation to help us meet our expenses. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can send a one-time donation of any size or set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. And for those of you who want to make a big difference on a little budget, on the website there's also a big green Donate button that allows you to easily set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month, the same as you'd spend on a cup of coffee and a decent tip. So buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee. Not that we'll drink it, we'll put it towards the show. It may not seem like a lot, but the more of you who sign on to this means of support, the further it goes to making a big difference in our ability to meet the monthly, quarterly, and yearly expenses. Please do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat stay up and running as we search and share information that the nuclear industry would really rather you not know. Whatever you can do to help, You've got my gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. Donna Gilmore is the founder and head of San Onofre Safety, a public resource for factual information about the serious safety issues with the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station and the tons of highly radioactive nuclear waste sitting on site smack up against the Pacific Ocean in Southern California. Donna is my go-to person for safety issues regarding San Onofre, and even the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has had her to Washington, D.C. to speak to them about her findings on high burn-up fuel. What she has to share today is, once again, a real set of shockers. We spoke on Thursday, July 26, 2018. Donna Gilmore. It's always a thrill to have you on Nuclear Hot Seat because one never knows what embarrassing bits of information on the nuclear industry you've managed to dig up this time. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yes, I have more stories for you. So looking forward to it. Now, you've been looking into issues raised by the government's proposed transport of highly radioactive nuclear waste-filled canisters from San Onofre to Yucca Mountain in Western Nevada. Should that dangerously flawed repository ever be approved, and we hope that it isn't. To give us a sense of what we're talking about here, first, give us a picture of what the waste at San Onofre consists of and some of the problems we face with it. The waste at San Onofre is being stored in thin wall stainless steel canisters. They're only five-eighths of an inch thick that the NRC admits are vulnerable to cracking. And they say once a crack starts in stainless steel, it will grow through the wall in 16 years. And the president of Holtec, Chris Singh, admitted that even if you could find a crack, which he admits that you can't right now, even a microscopic through-wall crack will release millions of curies of radionuclides into the environment. And in the face of that, if you could find a way to repair it, which they don't have, it wouldn't be feasible because repairing it would just introduce another area for cracking. So basically you have to replace the canisters 
if they have a through wall crack or even a, a partial crack, that they have no way to find cracks. And they have been misleading Edison, and even the NRC has been misleading the public that they're going to have a solution for this sometime. They don't have one now. We've got 15 canisters are up to 15 years old at San Onofre. How many canisters are there at San Onofre? And that represents how much radiation, say, per canister? Each canister is roughly a Chernobyl nuclear disaster. The amount of cesium released from the Chernobyl 1986 meltdown is in one canister, one canister. We've got 51 of the older canisters there. Like I said, the oldest ones are 15 years old. They're loading more. The Edison knows all the problems. They know all the problems with these canisters, and they continue to buy this inferior technology. And the old canisters have 24 fuel assemblies in them. The new ones have 37. And they have the same flaws, the same materials, the same vulnerabilities. They still can't be inspected, repaired. And instead of going to a better system, a proven system that's used in Europe and most of the world, which are thick wall casts that are 10 to 19 and three quarter inches thick and that can be monitored and maintained so you don't have leaks, they continue to buy more of these containers. And they're, they've loaded, I'm not sure what the count is right now, at one time it was about 15 of these new ones, and they're putting them halfway underground they wanted to put them totally below ground, but they hit the water table halfway down at the beach. Because San Onofre is directly on the beach. I mean, it's a big surfing beach, and it's a public park area, and there's very little distance at high tide between the ocean and the nuclear reactors. So it's worse than that. That ground is always soggy around there. When they dug the hole to put this big concrete monolith and all these holes in it, they had to pump out water in order to dig the hole. I mean, the thing is already going to be saturated with water. So it's just a really bad design. And I spoke to Mark Lombard, who at the time was the director of spent fuel management. I sat right next to him at the Coastal Commission meeting. This is the meeting where the Coastal Commission approved this ridiculousness. I said, Mark, an electrical contractor that digs electrical cables at Santa Nova, he told me that ground was always soggy. And he got this really shocked look on his face. And then he regained his composure and he says, well, that's their problem. They being? Being Edison, Edison's problem. The licensee is responsible. Oh, hot potato. Let's pass it as fast as we can. Yeah, but his, his job is to certify the facility and the site. Certify that this site is adequate for storing this waste. And the NRC gives a 20-year license. The Coastal Commission gave a 20-year permit, approved a 20-year permit to put it here. Now, the Coastal Commission actually admitted in the staff report these containers cannot be inspected, maintained, or monitored and could prematurely crack. They admitted all that in the staff report. But what the commission did was say, well, Edison, you have to promise to solve these problems in 20 years. Right. And they and require them to be transportable also. Well, you can't transport cracking canisters. It's not legal. It's not safe. Edison has literally dug us a hole in more ways than one. It seems that rail shipment 
is being promoted as an effective means of moving the San Onofre Waste to Yucca Mountain should that bad idea be approved, which we don't want it to be done. But they're saying, oh, just, you know, get it on some trains and ship it out. What are some of the problems that would be faced with rail transport that those who are pushing it really would not like the rest of us to know about? One of the big talking points that people echo is, well, the Navy moves that nuclear waste all the time. If the Navy can do it, we can do it. Here's what they don't understand. The Navy only takes one set route to Idaho. That's it. And they have hardened fuel, hardened containers designed for, you know, military situations. Oranges and apples. It's a much smaller quantity. So it's totally different. What we have are brittle rods. The uranium pellets, the stuff that's highly radioactive, are in these really thin metal rods that after you burn them in the reactor, they become brittle. Dr. Marvin Reznikoff said if you got in an accident with these, they would shatter like glass. And the NRC is still studying whether just normal train vibrations which is how they have to ship these by train because they're so heavy, normal train vibrations, they don't know if that will be enough to cause the fragile rods to start falling apart. And yet everybody's acting like this can happen. The Federal Rail Administration has only inspected less than 1%, not 1%, less than 1% of all the rail systems. Haven't even been inspected by the Federal Rail Association. And this is over what period of time? In general, that's what they do. I don't have a time period for that. The Western Governors Conference put together a paper on this, and that factoid was included in there. And then two railroad engineers recently spoke at a New Mexico legislative committee hearing because one of the plans show up at this hearing and said it's premature to talk about this. So they didn't even show up. So these were the rail workers. And one of them said, right now, the plan if there's an accident with this fuel is to just cut and run. What else could they do? It's stunning. And I think the nuclear industry's major plan, should anything go wrong, is, oh, well, kiss your posterior goodbye, because there's nothing that can be done. In terms of the rail transport, the industry's ploy besides Yucca Mountain as what they are trying to make a permanent repository for nuclear waste is what they are calling interim waste storage sites, either in West Texas or New Mexico. Yet just last weekend, there was a story about not one but two trains derailing in southeastern New Mexico because the tracks gave out. What does this say about the risk of transporting the incredibly heavy weight of the Holtec cans to the so-called interim sites? Well, even on, on one of the major rail systems website, they talk about how heavy loads really stress the train tracks, really causes a problem. And here we have an example where these rail cars were containing wasn't even near as heavy as these over 2,000 ton transport cabs we're talking about. And the tracks just didn't hold up under that shipment. So we're talking about even putting more pressure on there. And this hearing talked about, well, you know, the rail workers are not trained to handle this. Well, as if training is a solution. First responder training says take the, the radiation measurements and if it's, if it's too dangerous, just get the heck out of here. And nobody ever talks about what happens next. 
or who might be in proximity in the process of being abandoned, disaster site of one of these canisters falling off or breaking or somehow being breached in the process of transport. I emailed the DOE, the NRC, Southern California Edison, and the president of Holtec. He's the one that wants to build a facility in New Mexico. And I said, what is the route San Onofre Fuel will take? What is the rail route that it will take to get to Nevada, New Mexico, or Texas? Every one of them said, well, that hasn't been analyzed yet. And when I kept pushing I, with Holdeck, I said, well, what are the possible routes? He wouldn't even say that. What his response was, well, what do you recommend, Donna? <laughs> I mean, they have so many multi-millions and billions of dollars within this industry. They could have any experts they want. And here they are turning to you, the activist who has been doing this out of a personal passion and a desire to get to the truth and an outrage over the fact of how we have all been, what's the word, hornswoggled? Well, well, you know, obvious that was just a way to deflect is all that was. He wasn't really serious about asking. But I did research it, and the only route that's possible, given the rail system, would be through Los Angeles. So, you know, take your last trip to Disneyland, everybody. <laughs> so, given the fact that any route from San Onofre would include going through Los Angeles metro area, as well as other populated areas, as well as who knows how many things can go wrong, what is Southern California Edison's plan should there be an accident? First, we have to start with what is their plan if there's an accident right where the waste sits at San Onofre before it even goes anywhere. Because you can't transport a leaking can. You can't transport a can that has partial cracks. Uh, and you need to be able to inspect the fuel rods to make sure they are in good enough shape to transport, which, by the way, they can't do. But Edison says they've got it all covered. They had MPR associates write a white paper on how they've got it all covered with their waste management plan. And MPR Associates said if they had a leaking canister, they could ship that canister to the Idaho National Lab test area North Hot Cell. A hot cell is a dry fuel handling facility that's filled with an inert gas so nothing explodes, and they robotically could move it from one canister to another uh, container. Their footnote reference for that recommendation was to an Idaho National Lab report that said that hot cell that they were recommending has been destroyed in 2007. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my God. And they couldn't even get that straight? Or do you think this was intentional misdirection? Or do you think it was just some level of incompetence or a blind spot? You know, I don't like to make assumptions, but I do question the reading comprehension ability, especially since this was right in the executive summary. You didn't even have to read the report to find it. I already knew that hot cell had been destroyed years ago. I provided testimony at the Public Utility Commission on this issue, written testimony, and I also deposed one of uh, the experts, who was from San Diego Gas and Electric, who had claimed what I wrote was not true. And he also had recommended using 
that Idaho hot cell. And I said, were you aware that hot cell was destroyed? And he just started fumbling around because he had no clue. And Edison should have known this. This was their white paper. Did they review the white paper? Edison already knows that hot cell was destroyed. How did they allow that? And this company that they're using that's recommending this hot cell that doesn't exist, they are also the company Edison hired to do a report saying the broken shims in the new canisters that were delivered to Edison are okay to use. The incompetence never ends here. It's stunning because it's not like we're dealing with spilt milk here or you know, some cracked barrels that might be containing gravel or something. We are talking about high-level nuclear waste, which is capable of wiping out health, safety, and our genetic future. We're talking about permanent evacuations here. We're talking about our own Fukushima here, our own Chernobyl, actually multiple Chernobyls here. And and the thing that concerns me most is we have those 15-year-old canisters We have no idea how deep the cracks are, how many cracks there are. And knowing that Edison has no plan to stop or prevent cracks or explosions or even criticality is what concerns me most. This is just unacceptable. I wrote the NRC. I said, doesn't Edison's license require that they be able to unload canisters back into the pools? Uh, where it was stored in before it went in the dry storage. Edison admitted uh, a March community engagement panel meeting, and we have this on video, that they couldn't unload. They loaded four canisters with a defective design with fuel, and then the fifth canister, before they loaded it, they found a loose bolt sitting in the bottom of the canister, but they have not unloaded those four. They already had loaded and Edison admitted, Tom Palmisano, that they couldn't unload those if they want to. They're too hot. Uh, the NRC allowed them to load them at 200 to 300 degrees Celsius. Water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. You do the math. But he admitted it. And yet it's a requirement of their license. So I wrote, uh, they call it a reflooding problem, he called it. And he also admitted that no canister in the country has ever been unloaded, and everybody knows about this problem. Then he said, well, they probably could solve it in two or three years. Probably is the key word there. Well, if they've had decades, they've known about this problem, then I don't think it's a credible statement that they could figure it out. He said probably figure it out. That's what gets them off the hook, the word probably. And so I wrote to the NRC. I included the video of Edison's admission. And the NRC is pretending like I never asked that question. They usually answer my questions, either with a real answer or some bureaucratic talk. This one, they're just pretending I didn't ask it. The implications of this is every single nuclear plant in the country that has a pool and has dry storage are in the same situation. So this not doesn't just affect San Onofre. It affects Diablo Canyon. It affects every single operating reactor and all the reactors that still have a pool with their dry storage. This is Prairie Island, so we're talking Manhattan, we're New York, we're talking Florida. Most of these uh, facilities are on the East Coast or Midwest, some in the South, Chicago, major impact there. Chicago has, Illinois has the most waste uh, of, of any state. It had 11 
operating reactors, seven of them within 100 miles of the home that I grew up in. It's really terrifying what was done there. Donna, what do we do? What can we do? And how do we support you in what you're doing? Oh, what? Okay. Number one, there's a couple of there's a couple of bills um, that are in play right now. One is HR 3053. They call it the Shimkus bill. Um, it's supposed to solve our waste problems, so we can send our waste to some centralized facility like New Mexico or Texas, or send it to Nevada for Yucca Mountain. In that bill they are basically stripping all the good parts of the current law, the current Nuclear Waste Policy Act. They're eliminating all the safety requirements for storage and transport, all the oversight. They are allowing the license to be transferred, say, from Edison to the DOE, right where the waste sits. That's actually in this, in this bill. So the, you know, the real purpose of the bill from the industry, nuclear industry's point of view, is they want to get, they know what's coming. They know these canisters are not going to last, and they're trying to get rid of liability before they start cracking, leaking, and exploding. So that's really the purpose of that bill. This has already passed the House, and it's sitting in the Senate. I watched all the hearings. They did not, the people that voted for this don't even know the truth about this bill. They don't even know what's in there. It's a very complicated bill. It took me three days to analyze it. So that's one of the problems. So what could really use is more help with people getting educated on this issue and reaching out to their elected officials, local, state, national, because the local elected officials, they can represent an entire city. So they can write letters and they can hire lobbyists and they can talk to you know, their federal elected officials. They can make statements in the press because we never, we don't get enough media attention on this issue, which is basically the survival of California and beyond. Lynn Herring is a retired Navy admiral. He said if something happened at San Onofre, Pendleton would be useless. Wow. The implications of this go so far and genuinely touch all of us. And you're right. It's not a California issue. I know that should Yucca Mountain be approved, which is not a particularly good idea, transport of the waste would go through 44 separate states. So all of these issues of vulnerability that we're talking about, just from rail without even going into what transport along the roads or on barges would consist of, that this is a national, if not an international issue, because any place in this country, certainly, that has a nuclear reactor is going to be involved with the waste and with the transport and the need to do something with it. And basically, we're being hoodwinked into believing that something is being done when all that is happening is the transfer of liability away from the utilities and away from the nuclear industry and right into the lap of the federal government and taxpayers. Yeah, there was never, there was never any money to fund an interim storage facility. And the money that was there for Yucca Mountain that's been collected from, ta- from ratepayers all these years They've already used that money for something else. The money isn't there. So there's not like this big pile of, you know, millions or trillions of dollar money that they can dip into. They, they used it for other things. So 
this bill also requires congressional allocations to put into the waste fund so it can be used for this. And that money's got to come from somewhere else. Somebody else is not going to get their money to get this money. And already the sites that the DOE, Department of Energy, manages at Hanford, Savannah River, and a number of other locations, they already have a problem getting enough money from Congress to make sure they can safely store the waste. They have leaking tanks of radioactive material at Savannah River and they can't get the money to replace the tanks. And then when they do get money, it's either not enough or they buy something that will only last short term. I mean, they're using tanks that are very thin. They're carbon steel. They can't adequately be inspected. The only way you'll know is after they start leaking water. And at Hanford, those tanks, they're already leaking into the Columbia River. You talk up in Washington down to Oregon. So if, if DOE takes over our waste, you know, we're, we're in even, I don't know how we can get in bigger trouble, but, I mean, the money's not going to be there. Right now, Edison could get the PUC to approve money to buy better containers. We actually could take some control of this in California. If we give Edison enough money to buy better containers, I don't see why they wouldn't do it. And how could we put pressure to at least push for better quality containers for the waste until something better or something genuinely long-term can be created? Number one, we have to get in people's consciousness that this has to be done in a certain order. Step one, we have to have safer containers that can be maintained and monitored to prevent leaks. Step two, we need to find a safer location on higher ground and store these containers in buildings. Edison is, and others are trying to distract us that we can just dump this problem on somebody else. I can tell you right now, the rail, you know, the rail system isn't ready for it. They don't even want this stuff on their rails. They don't even have a feasible transport plan. The NRC staff wrote to Holtec and said, before you move these, you have to make sure you don't have cracks in the canisters. You have to make sure the fuel inside hasn't become damaged. They have no way to do that. So this is just a big ruse. Now, Holtec, he'll get his money. If the bill passes, he will get money to build a facility that probably will never be used. It's just a crazy deal. And then I can tell you right now that there's major oil and gas reserve in Texas area, and the oil and gas industry is opposed to sending the waste there. So you're taking on the oil and gas industry if you think you're going to put this in New Mexico and Texas. The legal, political, and technical problems are going to mean it's, it's not going anywhere. The analogy I would use is moving the waste to some other state is not going to solve this problem any more than rearranging the chairs on the Titanic would stop it from sinking. Donna, what's your website where people can get even more information on this? Sananofresafety.org, O-R-G, S-A-N-O-N-O-F-R-E, and then the word safety, S-A-F-E-T-Y. Just think oxymoron. <laughs> no, but I have, I, have, I have a handout right near the top of the homepage it's designed for elected officials at all levels with recommendations. So take a look at that. You can always contact me through the website if you want to get involved. We need more people that can do outreach on this. It's a very small number of people 
that are working on this. So we need more people to help. And, you know, it's not a matter of feeling qualified. We, we don't ask elected officials to buy thick wall casks. We know that's the only proven technology available. What we ask, basically, is the same requirements that you would expect in a car. You can inspect it, maintain it, repair it, and it will give you a warning before something major goes wrong. These are common sense safety requirements that these thin wall canisters can't even meet. And the NRC approving this should be enough to know that we cannot trust the NRC to protect our safety. I spoke to a staffer for one of the federal elected officials in Illinois. I said, what percent of the people or what percent of the elected officials in Congress do you think trust the NRC to protect our safety? And he said the majority of them. And the whole 3053 bill and the other bill, there's an appropriation bill where this is also in there, they are all premised on trusting the NRC to only approve safe transport and safe containers. And we can't trust them. So our elected officials need to have evidence of why they can't trust the NRC. And this whole bill guts the law and gives all authority to the NRC and the DOE to do what they want. And they also are making it, it removing transparency. When DOE has a contract with Edison or New Mexico or wherever, whoever the licensee is, when they have a contract, we will have no right for input, oversight, no transparency. They can hide everything they're doing. This is a th that bill is a threat to our democracy, and the people voting for it didn't even know it. Donna, we're going to stay in touch with you on all of these issues because clearly this is where the nuclear battles are taking place now and require our attention, our education, and setting up meetings with our elected officials to let them know that there's another perspective other than trusting the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on this, and we've got the talking points to help turn them around. You know, the nuclear industry uses the word perspective. I don't have a perspective. I have the facts. We know you do, Donna, and we trust you and rely on you to come up with even more of them as we keep going with this battle. For now, I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Donna Gilmore, founder and head of San Onofre Safety, which can be found at sananofresafety.org. Realize that the issues being dealt with regarding San Onofre's highly radioactive waste will be faced by every other nuclear reactor community in the country. So go to that site, read up on the issues, and then do what you can to help support Donna and let Donna help you help your community. Activist shout-outs. Documentary photojournalist Sim Chi Yin is on a whirlwind two-month journey from the China-North Korea border to six states in western United States. Her mission is to create a series of photographs that reflect on mankind's and womankind's experience with nuclear weapons. Ms. Sim, who was commissioned to showcase this year's Nobel Peace Prize winner, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, is the first Singaporean Peace Prize photographer in the exhibition's 13-year history. We wish her well on her journey and can't wait to see those photos. 
veteran anti-nuclear activist Harvey Wasserman has a radio program, that's a broadcast radio show, called Solartopia. His most recent program focused on nuclear issues with guests award-winning environmental investigative reporter Carl Grossman, Susan Shapiro, who is attorney in a lawsuit seeking to undo a $7.6 million ratepayer bailout of four failing nuclear power plants in upstate New York, and Joe Mangano, executive director of the Radiation and Public Health Project, who speaks about the bailout and a similar one in New Jersey, as well as high rates of cancer among people living near nuclear power plants. Of course, they also addressed the hoax that nuclear power is, quote, carbon-free and, quote, clean. It's a really good show featuring four people, all of whom have been guests on this show. And we will have a link to it up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 371. And here's the latest update on my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, remember last week when I said my book would be available on August 2nd? Cancel, cancel. Just when I thought it was safe to announce the launch of the book, it came back with some new and really inventive formatting problems. So I'm back to having to fiddle around, reload to create space. I'm getting tired of this, aren't you? But it's very close. And I hope to be able to announce the launch date by next week's show and have a date that I can mean. Now I know how pregnant women feel who find themselves still carrying at 10 months. I want this thing out of me. Soon. Soon, I promise. Here's today's final thought. You heard Donna Gilmore's report on what's not being reported about the problems of transport of high-level radioactive waste anywhere, especially by rail. Yet this is being bandied about as though it's as simple as a commuter getting on the subway in New York. And as rad waste is being put into thin-walled, sealed, Unable to be monitored or repaired casks for storage, long-term storage when they're only valued for 24 years, and deeply flawed plans are hatched to ship it off to nobody really knows where, the fuel pools that stored the so-called spent fuel rods, which still have plenty of plutonium and cesium in them to spend, these fuel pools that have been essential to safety are being dismantled. And as Donna has told us, since 2007, there is no facility in this country to unpack and repack damaged dry casks. So without on-site fuel pools as a fallback, if or when something goes wrong, we've got no options. In essence, we are being painted into a nuclear corner from which we cannot and will not get out. What is needed is what they have in Europe, redundant safety systems to guarantee that we have several sequential options if something goes wrong. Otherwise, our only genuine option is kiss your ass and your genetic downline goodbye. What is it with the people who run this industry? Are they so arrogant they don't think there will ever be a problem when, let's face it, this is nuclear? There is always and there will always be problems. Just read the weekly NRC event reports to see how frequently they happen. 
Maybe these people think it will be okay as long as they kick the can far enough down the road so a radiation disaster doesn't happen on their watch. Maybe they think they'll be safe because they've already bought their former sheep farm in New Zealand or that missile silo condo bunker to which they will retreat when something really bad happens. So they think they'll survive and be just fine even if the rest of us are not. They think they have a get-out-of-jail-free card and the hell with the rest of us. But at times like these, I'm reminded of the beginning of that Batman movie, the one with Heath Ledger as the Joker. It shows a bank robbery. And as soon as the frontline robbers who blew the safe finish their work, they're shot and killed. The ones who kill them grab the money and think they're safe, but as soon as they deposit the loot in the getaway van, they get shot and killed. Then the guy who killed them gets shot and killed by the driver of the van, who subsequently is shot and killed right after he delivers the money to the number two man who brings it to the Joker and is then shot and killed. You see, no matter where you are in a hierarchy, there's always somebody above you. Even bosses have bosses. And while you may think your actions have brought you to safety, all they've done is put you on somebody else's front line to betray, condemn, and destroy. And no matter who in this nuclear industry power structure ultimately survives, high-level radioactive nuclear waste is the boss of us all. It will outlast you. And whenever you emerge from your bunker or your militia-protected former sheep ranch, you will ultimately be contaminated with radiation, enough to, if not kill you, at least damage your DNA enough that none of your offspring will ultimately survive. Now is the time for the people, the individuals within this industry, to stand up for genuine safety and safe handling of highly radioactive nuclear reactor waste. Now! before it gets away from our ability to even marginally contain and control. If the nuclear industry is allowed to take away our few feeble safety protections, if we pretend that nothing will ever go wrong, so why bother to spend money on fuel pools? And why bother to maintain the only hot cell facility while approving dangerous shipments by rail through heavily populated areas with canisters that can only be referred to as mobile Chernobyls, the nuclear industry will have doomed us to an inevitable, eventual, radiological disaster from which our species may not survive. I say it every week and have never meant it more than now. Nuclear. The issue is safety. So come on, everybody. Let's get busy. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 31st, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, portsmouth-dailytimes.com, shtfplan.com, thestate.com, Tom Carpenter and Hanford Challenge, try-cityherald.com, thegazette.com, lancasteronline.com, technologyreview.com, frontiersman.com, thebigwobble.org, beyondnuclearinternational.org, vox.com, 
ProPublica.org, RenewEconomy.com, Mainichi.jp, SCMP.com, ABC.net.au, NPR.org, NationalGeographic.com, ScienceDirect.com, the sole dead cubicle drones who ate the baby and grind out press releases for World Nuclear News, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world, 123 countries on six continents and counting. Along with that, a big welcome to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. You, yes you, you show your love for life on this planet by being willing to know the truth and then acting on it. I am so glad I am with you on this journey together as kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness. And maybe that will be turned into an anthem for us to sing someday. Thanks also for visiting the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat page, not the podcast page. Facebook took away my content on that one a long time ago, so just go to the blog page. That's the one that's marked with the logo. If you haven't stopped by yet, come on down and check it out. Click like, follow us, post, and share. And know that you can get our back episodes, all 370 of them, at NuclearHotSeat.com. If you add slash blog to the URL, you will be able to scan 10 episodes at a time. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, and recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. Don't want to miss an episode? Get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered to your email inbox every week. Just one email, that's all. I won't bug you. And it's easy to do. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down to find the yellow box, that's especially if you're on a tablet or a smartphone, and sign up for weekly email links to the latest episode. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. Know that we will really appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the last thing anyone who fights nuclear wants to be able to say is, I told you so. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So please do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.